a different kind of leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, this is Giselle Corby, host of A Different Kind of Leader. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I am thrilled to be joined today by my colleague, Dr. Charles Mouton. Dr. Mouton is currently serving as interim president at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. He is executive vice president, provost, and has been executive vice president and provost and dean of the John Seeley School of Medicine and professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Dr. Mutan previously served UTMB as vice dean for academic affairs in the School of Medicine. He joined UTMB in 2017, coming from Meharry, where he was Senior Vice President for Health and Dean of the School of Medicine. He has many awards and accolades, and we've known each other since early on in our careers as junior faculty in the Women's Health Initiative, and which is part of his research interests are both women's health, health disparities, as well as aging and late-life domestic violence. Charles, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Gisela. It's always a pleasure of seeing and talking to you. We've been doing this, getting together by phone and now by computer for many decades. <laughs> many decades. <laughs> Charles, we start every podcast with a quote from one of our guests. So can you share a quote that embodies your leadership style or approach to your career or one that just you just like because it resonates with you? I guess I have a couple quotes. I guess I like to think my style embodies one that was sort of driven into me as a medical student at Howard University. And we were always told you have to maintain equanimity under duress. That translates, you got to be cool under pressure. Absolutely. And so that was one thing that, that I embodied. And a second quote from uh, Charles Drew, also a, a legendary uh, faculty member at Howard University. His quote was, excellence of performance will transcend artificial barriers made by men. Can you unpack that one? I love that. Well, I, I think he's talking about the fact that if you do excellent work, that no one can put up barriers against that. So if you're a great leader, if you know how to motivate people, if you do an excellent job of that, the fact that you happen to have a different skin hue from another or have a different cultural background or a different from a different country, none of those artificial barriers can stand in the way of that excellence of performance that you do so well. I love that. And the artificial barriers, because particularly in the time of Dr. Charles Drew, there were so many artificial barriers to physician inventors, leaders of color, and they were artificial. And I would imagine, you know, in darker moments that some of them were intentionally created right. to sort of stop that genius or attempt to stop yes. that genius. Right. But if, if you continue to perform and display your talent, is something that becomes undeniable. How have you seen that played out in your career? 
I wouldn't consider myself remarkably talented. I think for me, it's been sort of being willing to answer the call to to be a servant leader, being willing to say yes. And then once there, getting a team around you that's willing to execute. And once individuals see that, that you stand by your word, you're committed to fairness, you're committed to making sure execution happens on a, on a plan or innovation or a forethought, that means that they can rely upon you to deliver, to deliver in terms of a leader for your company, your organization, your school, your team, whatever. That's that performance piece. So being for me, being able to answer the call when called upon and being able to deliver when the moment comes is what's been one of the things that's allowed me to be successful. You've had incredible success throughout the years, and we've talked about this in the past. Is this is being a, the president of a university, which is what you are now, sitting in that role, is this something that you had thought about? How did you get even into medicine, much as a faculty career? And how did you, how do you see that answering the call sort of played out in your career for you to get to where you are now? I'll start at the beginning. You know, when I was a, a kid growing up in, in the inner city, New Orleans, you know, I, I had a, and I enjoyed reading. And, you know, when you do that in my neighborhood, it's like, oh, you're smart. You're going to be a doctor. And, and people would talk that up to you. And, you know, we laugh it off and then go out and play. So that was sort of dropped on me by my neighborhood friends at, at a young age. And I think what made me crystallize it was an incident that happened with my mother's aunt. So in, in Louisiana, you know, you, if your aunt is your godmother, we call her your nana. And so this was my mother's nana, I guess my great nana. But to me, she was nanny. When she'd come by the house, she used to bring me tutti fruity ice cream. And I was always sort of there giving me words of encouragement. And uh, when she was uh, about 86, 87 or so, she was still working as domestic. And uh, she came by the house and uh, my mother noticed this sore on her, on the side of her, her ankle, and it wasn't healing. And now my mother sort of talked to her, well, maybe you should see a doctor. And then Nan had never seen a doctor in her entire 80 plus years. After a little product, she said, well, okay, I guess I'll go see a doctor. So she went to see a doctor who I suspect was a well-meaning individual. She must have mentioned that she was having problems sleeping. And at that time, there was only one medication that had come out for sedation. That was a benzodiazepine. And this well-meaning physician, again, I, I, no ill harm, but he was a well-meaning physician that prescribed for her value. Well, the problem with that particular drug and someone her age, the normal half-life in a young, robust person is anywhere from 48 to 72 hours. And someone her age, that drug lasts in the system for over a week. And then that never really woke up. She wound up essentially in a, a comatose state for the next two to three years. We had to put her in the nursing home and everything. And I remember thinking that, boy, you know, it sure is important that we have competent, well-trained physicians taking care of the people in our community. 
that father solidified that desire in my heart to be a physician. And so that's how it all started. I think from there, uh, a lot of what happened to me in my leadership journey reflects really two things. One, being willing to answer the opportunity when there was a call. And number two, always wanting to improve upon the number of competent individuals taking care of our community. And so for me, that, that journey, you know, originally started in undergraduate. Well, I guess it started before, even in high school, you know, you were in the band or in the football team, you know, at, at some point you become the section leader. And so you sort of lead the folks that play your instrument. You in charge of the younger folks, getting them, you know, brought up and lined up. And, and so you, you, you have sort of a sprinkling of leadership just in that as, you know, team captain, uh, like I said, section leader, line captain, drum major, cheerleader captain, whatever. Then you move on to college and what happened to me in college, the, uh, engineering students, as you come in, they say, well, you got to elect a, a class president. And uh, everybody's looking around at each other. Say, well, so what, what do y'all got to say yes? And nobody wants to say yes. So I, I raised my hand and said, okay, I'll do it. And I became class president of freshman engineering uh, student council. And again, didn't think much about it. You know, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do, but we did a couple of events here and there just to keep people happy. And people thought of you as sort of a student government leader. Not sure what that meant. And so eventually for me, that parlayed itself into medical school. When I got to medical school, and again, I was kind of focused on just trying to get through medical school. But about the time I was a sophomore, there were a senior and a junior who had been part of what they called the graduate student assembly. And that's at Howard. And the senior had graduated and the junior said, look, we need somebody to represent the School of Medicine because I'm going to be graduating soon as well. I just happened to be in the hall and he kind of came up to the group of us and nobody would move. And so finally I said, okay, I'll do it. So I became the School of Medicine representative to graduate student council. And I got up, got up there and I noticed that everything was run by either law students, poli science graduate students. It was a, a social work student. And, you know, the professional schools either didn't have representation or representation didn't speak up or say anything or create events that, you know, promoted what they needed. And so the next year, you know, I decided to run for a graduate student assembly coordinator, which means you're in charge of all the student council affairs for the graduate school. Because a lot of people in the law school and the dental school and other schools knew me, I wound up winning. Much to the chagrin of the law student and the poli sci graduate students, they were they were just infuriated. It was like, how could somebody who has no desire to do polit political anything beat beat us in an election? They were infuriated, and that was really the first time that it dawned on me that I had to learn a little bit about leadership and, and managing. Because with that came, I had a little essentially volunteer staff. I had to run meetings. I had to make sure there was minutes. And so I remember I was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know nothing about this. I, you know, I wasn't even paying attention when I was up there. And so I, I got this book. I found this book called The One Minute Manager. It's a very tiny book. 
And I read that thing cover to cover and almost memorized everything, including everything from running meetings to taking minutes to uh, brief treaties on parliamentary procedure, et cetera. And that became my administrative Bible for, you know, student (laughs) government. So that first year, you know, we we actually stayed on budget. We hosted several things for the graduate students across the campus that they'd never seen before. I actually went to all the the campuses and met with most of the graduate schools to make sure we were doing programs that were important to them, which also meant that the next year when I ran, I I was (laughs) almost unopposed (laughs) and it was a landslide. And so that was sort of my exposure to actually trying to organize something on a broader scale. And I, I didn't really do much of that, you know, outside of residency training. Of course, you wind up being chief resident. And it's, again, throughout my career has been opportunities to serve and answer the call when asked. That is so powerful. And also how insightful you were at such a young age, like, wait a minute, I don't actually know how to run a meeting. (laughs) Hold on a minute. In addition to your sort of natural tendency and interest in, you know, what your constituents wanted, you know, going to each of these schools to really understand what it is you need to do to serve them. It's such a beautiful sort of mingling of learning as well as natural and innate um, sort of innately knowing what needed to happen. Yeah, I think that throughout my career, I don't think there's been a single position or job that I, you know, I did with the intent of anything outside of, you know, I think I can help and make people have a better career, work experience, or fulfill the original thing. And that's, again, training competent docs to take care of people in the community. Now, we've had a conversation recently, and I wonder if you could share. We start both started out as researchers and in an incredibly successful and landmark study, the Women's Health Initiative. You've enjoyed considerable success in your own research career. And now you're a full-time administrator, a leader at a major university in our country. Can you share how you made that decision? If somebody were, were looking at that kind of position, at making that decision to move from a sort of a typical faculty scholar position to really taking on a full-time leadership role, what are the things that they should consider? How do they come up with you know, their pro and cons list and how do they think about that transition? Or how did you think about it? I think someone considering that change needs to think about what's their motivation, what's their passion, and thinking about how that fits in to this next opportunity. And you have to be clear about it. A lot of folks tend to glamorize some of this, but it's all work. And you got to be willing to really desire what the job is about. So, you know, what, what I told, you know, I've told you and told many others, you know, as I look over my career in academia, there's no more fun job in academia than being a well-funded center director. <laughs> you know, everybody looks at chairs and deans and, and presidents and, oh, that's, you know, that's got to be the thing. But and I have no doubt in my mind and without reservation, it's not those jobs. That's the fun job. The fun job is really being able to do your research and being innovative and have the money to do it. So I'll put that aside. (laughs) But if you want to talk about making your organization better at its mission, if you want to try to create 
an environment in your organization that's welcoming to diverse groups, that allows people to uh, individually live their best careers and lives. If your institution has a mission to train in the next generation of scholars and health professions to serve the community, and it's the community that you want to make sure gets the best, that's when you take these opportunities to see how you can help. And it's all about understanding that piece of things in terms of having a willingness to help because that desire, that desire to be of service allows you to put in the time that you're going to have to put in to address the needs of the people that are relying upon you. It's much like a healthcare. You know, you do have to be available to care for your patient. Well, as a leader of organization, you have to be available to care for your organization and those that work under you. And the energy you need for that sacrifice really comes from another quote I heard. This was somebody talking about the relation between a physician and their patient. And this particular individual was saying that to be a great physician, the object of your affection has to be the patient. And you're always seeking to do the best for your patient. Well, I think the same can apply for a leader. The object of your affection has to be the institution that you're leading and what its mission is about and making sure that it can live up to that mission and doing all that you can to move that mission forward. Really important, really powerful. You're in this role as president of a university now. What are the things that you would have liked to have learned to prepare you for this role? Or what are the things that you learned along the way that you think had let you be well positioned to take on this role? I would say one thing that I actually heard relatively recently that helps out a lot now was a, a statement when I was doing a shadowing of a president about six, seven months ago. You know, we were having lunch and he, he, he looked at me and said, I'm going to tell you something that I was told many, many years ago that made all the difference for me when I was on my leadership journey. He said, just remember, as a leader, they don't hate you. They just hate that you're in charge. <laughs> and if they knew what you knew, they would be doing the same thing and making the same decisions. But they don't hate you, just that you're in charge. And that was pretty profound and helpful, as simple as it sounded. Because a lot of times when you're the leader and, as I say, stuff is coming at you, you start to wonder, you know, man, is it just me? Do they can't stand me? What is it about me and what I'm doing that's the issue? And his statement was very helpful to me to understand, no, it's not about you. Getting back to that servant piece. Yes. It's not about you. It's about they wish they were you. And a lot of times they're not you because they wouldn't make the sacrifices you made to get there or develop the skill sets or didn't say yes when opportunity arose. Mm-hmm. And so that was real helpful in me being a more thoughtful, more patient leader, not getting caught up into the back and forth of, you know, of the tax that they throw at you. 
and recognizing that it's not personal because it often will feel personal. But it's not. You happen to be sitting in that seat at that moment in time. I know that you've participated in different leadership programs, and certainly that early sort of insight is, to me, just remarkable that at that early age that you realized that you needed to build a skill set around your leadership. Which programs were the most impactful in terms of where you are now? And you don't have to name them by name, but what were the kinds of pieces of skills that you learned along the way that you felt um, were most impactful in your leadership? Yeah, I think for me early on, learning how to manage a meeting, learning how to think in a strategic, then in a human design fashion, which is the Mm. current craze. Those were important programs that had you sort of look at your strengths and weaknesses as a leader, communication, understanding what I look like when I'm speaking, how to have a, a certain presence on stage. I remember thinking when I first got into this leadership thing, I remember thinking the boy had been I'd have been better off if I'd have been a theater arts major than an mm, yep. <laughs> engineering major undergraduate. But, you know, having that and, and understanding, you know, yourself, you know, I, I've prided myself as a leader and always striving to lead with fairness. I try to lead with a strong sense of fairness. I like to think that the people I lead appreciate that. Now, a lot depends on the culture that you're in leading because some cultures, uh, people expect uh, a certain amount of privilege. Mm-hmm. So if you're a leader that's focusing on fairness, that becomes counterculture to the organization. But for the most part, you know, I've been relatively successful focusing on uh, having a high sense of fairness, always having a sense of integrity, not taking any chances around, again, that character integrity piece, particularly around, you know, personal aggrandizement and financial gains. You know, I'll come out of my pocket to pay for a meal before I, you know, turn in a receipt. Mm -hmm. They get mad at me sometimes for doing that. But I want to make sure that everything I do, I put in the institution at the forefront and promoting that. And so it's been relatively easy in most of my bigger leadership jobs because those have been always been institutions that I've had a great fondness and affection for. You know, first the department chair of my alma mater at Howard, then at another HBCU, which, you know, that had historic and great meaning for healthcare. And now at an institution that's a majority institution, but also has probably one of the biggest track records in developing and training underrepresented minorities in the health professions. So all of those met a personal commitment on my part that meant that I was willing to promote the institution itself to the best of my ability. What are your sources of inspiration now? My source of inspiration are, you know, my colleagues, my pe- my friends like you, others around me that do such a great job. I, I watch other leaders and... Uh, say, boy, I had that skill set. And so it inspires me to work on, you know, areas that I'm not as strong. And so, you know, yeah, other leaders, other individuals who who have, again, taken on the challenge of trying to 
help organizations in this world be better. Mm-hmm. And um, they all have a, a, a little bit of something that, that I can learn from. And so constantly learning, constantly improving, trying to stay on the cutting edge of understanding the industry that I'm in, plus understanding the um, best way to deliver the right product to my customers and as students and, and patients. Yeah, I guess I'm helped a little bit by my engineering background. We're always looking for something new and cool and inventive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's been real helpful to me. You know, I've been willing to go and learn about, you know, virtual reality and understand human design approaches to new product development. Those are things that nobody taught me in medical school mm-hmm. or in residency or, or anywhere else. But those are things that allow me to have some insights that I could bring to the institution to make it better. So our closing questions, these are the ones we ask everyone. What do you do for self-care? Particularly, this is a moment in time where leaders from diverse social backgrounds are being called on in so many different ways and we need to make sure our cup is full to be able to pour from it. I am probably not the exemplar. <laughs> so far I, I think you're you're right in, you're in good company. <laughs> I'm almost afraid to, to say anything. I don't want anybody following my example on that. But I will often you know I try to get a little exercise in every now and then I'm not as good as I should be but I don't follow the National Institute of Aging Guidelines for Exercise for Older Adults, but I'm trying. <laughs> on weekends, I will try to decompress by sitting out you know, on my back porch. As you know, my, my house sits on a, on a nice lake. And so I can sit out there and decompress and watch the people, you know, jet ski or whatever. But also it gives me a sense of the power of the universe mm-hmm. that's around me, the immenseness of, you know, the, the lake, the clouds, the, the majesty of it all. And so it reminds me that it's not such a, a great thing that I'm trying to do. So that allows me to decompress, read books, listen to books, listen to music. You know, the other thing, you know, as you know, I, I have a hobby of playing music. So I get to decompress. And I'm not even sure it's decompressing. It's, uh, I think it's more stressful than not trying to play instruments that I haven't touched in 45 years. (laughs) What instruments do you play? Well, I technically play all woodwinds except the oboe. Mm -hmm. But right now, when I really want to have fun playing, I'll play my saxophone. So tenor, soprano, and baritone. Those are instruments I feel like I have actual some ability to get good (laughs) sound out of. But lately, because nobody plays this instrument a lot around here, uh, the students have put together an orchestra. So uh, I have joined them as their bassoonist. Awesome. <laughs> so I, I now play the bassoon in, in, in two groups. I don't feel like I'm playing an instrument. It's more like it's playing me. <laughs> and I'm a self-taught bassoonist. And I, you know, I oh, went on, my goodness. You know, so I tried to get some information about, you know, the re- gearing myself back up to play the instrument. So I went on, of course, YouTube. Of course. And the first thing the person said was, 
this is not an instrument you should ever try to teach yourself. <laughs> so that, that immediately shut me down. Said, okay, well, there's, there's obviously no hope for me at this point. But, uh, but when YouTube tells you don't use YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> there, you, there you go. And so uh, I've been, I've been uh, trying to at least get up to a junior high level of, of ability on the instrument. Yeah, you, the president can't be the weak link in the student group. <laughs> But the, but the students have been pretty encouraging. You know, they pat me on the head like, trying so hard. And, and, and so, we see you working hard at it. We <laughs> see you working hard at it. So they get great humor out, out of my mm-hmm. uh, travails and, and trying to make sound come out of the bassoon. <laughs> what is your favorite leadership book or a book that you recommend to others? I don't really have a favorite. There's a lot that I've used. I'll just mention one or two. One is, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Covey, eight, that's a classic. It's called The Handbook of Principles of Organizational Behavior. Okay. I have not heard of that one. That's, I'm going to look it up. The subtitle is Indispensable Knowledge for Evidence-Based Management. And I love <laughs> it because it really is a textbook for leaders and managers, but it's all about different aspects that you run into in leadership and it pulls, it's like evidence-based journal reviews mm-hmm. for that particular topic in industrial psychology and organizational leadership. Wow. So that book has been really, really insightful for me. Those are the, sort of the main things. And like I said, I've been immersing myself in design thinking. So mm-hmm. there's been a couple of design thinking books. The, the Harvard book reviews have all been uh, helpful in, in, in that Yeah. What are you reading or listening to now? So on on the pleasure side of the things, I've I've decided to reread the Doom series. And so I'm I'm on the last of the original books of the Doom series. I read them a long time ago. And when the movie came out, I decided to reread them. So I'm finishing up that series. And for my nonfiction reading, like I said, I've been reading books on design thinking Reading books on how to play the bassoon. (laughs) (laughs) There's another, I can't remember the name of this book now. I just bought it. It basically talks about leading with a a moral compass. And I cannot remember the name of it, but it was recommended for me. I can try to find it to you and and send it to you, your podcast listeners. What do you think separates good leaders from great leaders? That's a good question. I, I think partly, I think it's timing. You know, they're in a right time in the organization that the organization is ready to move. That's the other book I love, Good to Great. Yeah, that's a good one. Classic. But they're they're at the organization at a time the organization is ready to And it says flywheel concept. So Mm -hmm. they're there and they're able to turn the flywheel that next time. I think Mm -hmm. that's one thing. And so I'm not sure there's anything about that leader in particular. Sometimes it is, particularly taking the organization from nothing to something. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, it's they're at there at the right time. So that's one thing that separates uh, great from good leaders. The second thing I think that separates great from good leaders is their ability to surround themselves by engaged talent. Mm Mm-hmm. And finding talent that's willing to follow them. A lot of time we wind up getting 
either talent that really wants to supplant our job <laughs> or <laughs> the haters. We get, get individuals <laughs> that want to be around us but really aren't energized to work. Mm-hmm. And a great leader tends to be one that can identify and recruit and surround themselves by talent that want to lift the organization up and support them as a leader in accomplishing the vision of the organization. What advice would you give to your younger self? Well, it, it depends on how young. If I went all the way back, if I went to when I was little growing up in my neighborhood, I'd say, stop playing in the street and study. <laughs> <laughs> Even for my college self, our high school self, Definitely my college self, I would give that advice. <laughs> yeah, high school and college self, you know, I feel like I'm echoing the words of my mother. Boy, leave those girls alone and study. <laughs> and so just encouraging a little bit more energy and focus around developing, you know, the intellectual part of myself. Mm-hmm. I think. The other piece of advice would be that it's all right. You don't have to worry about necessarily having been not the number one or not making a hundred on the test or the importance is the skills and the competency developed in trying to achieve that hundred on a 98 and reminding myself of that, I think, be the thing I would say. Get good at it. The rest will come. I love it. That's so insightful. Charles, thanks so much for being on this podcast today. Just incredible. Well, thank you for having me. You you, you had me think about questions I would never think of of myself. (laughs) So so thank you for that. It's always a pleasure talking with you because I've always walked away with a nugget and oftentimes more than one. So thank you so much for being here. This episode was hosted by Giselle Corby and produced by Rachel Quinto. Our production assistant is Shelby McClam. It contains music by Mix Out and Chill Out Lounge and is sound engineered by Sam Williams. Visit our website at differentkindofleader.com to find resources for your leadership toolkit and hear more from other leaders. If you like what you've heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find us. Like and comment on Facebook and Instagram at Different Kind of Leader, all one word, as well as on Twitter at DK Leadership. As always, we want to hear from our listeners, so please contact us at differentkindofleader at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is A Different Kind of Leader.